I need to let you know that I might have invented something incredible or it already exists and I am devoid of culture, which is more likely true. I don't know where this is going. Pancakes. (laughs) Absolutely not invented pancakes. I'm aware that pancakes exist. However, you know, so I had to unfreeze those pancakes that were in the freezer, right, to defrost them. Yeah. So I just put them in the oven because they were all jammed together because they were completely solid. And when I took them out of the oven, like, because I had to cook them for a long time because they were frozen and solid together. So the inside had to be hot too. And when I took them out, the top one was super crispy. Uh It was like pancake crisp right. right and i thought oh no it's it wasn't burnt it was just very dry mm-hmm. right and it was so nice and you know i like a crispy food anyway like a crisp or yeah, a cracker yeah, or whatever right yeah. but it was so good and i wondered if this existed like anyway if this was a snack a known snack right like a sweet crisp sweet chip uh-huh. right and i googled it and it doesn't appear to exist like it, the only thing that comes up when you co- when you Google crispy pancake is like you know the bird's eye crispy pancakes. Uh huh. With no, meat in but the middle. Sure. Yeah. You, no, you never had those. No. No. Well, anyway, they're they're completely. They've got like meat in them or cheese in them, and they're like savory pancakes that you okay put in the microwave or something. Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, and I. I think this should be a thing. I will do that okay. in future. Okay, let me get this right. So first of all, you had a stack of pancakes frozen together. So to make Crepes, this one specifically one crispy crepe, uh-huh. what you have to do is you have to cook a bunch of... What happens to the rest of them underneath? Well, no, see, that's the thing. That's why I wondered if there was like a recipe or, you know, something where you can just make them straight away rather than making a bunch of pancakes potentially freezing them and then cooking them again in the oven no because you could space them out if they weren't frozen right you could kind of leave them to defrost and then cook them separately so what you're saying is that what you invented is taking a crepe and chucking it in the oven right that's and then putting like sugar on it or something like so what i did was just dipped it in some sugar because we didn't have anything to actually put on top of it but imagine that it would be like churros or something, right? Where you have like cinnamon or sugar and, and it's a bag of chips, sweet chips with sugar and but they're like made of pancake. It just sounds or like dry crispy batter. That's that's And it was delicious. Okay, I so I don't believe you, but What do you mean did you saw it in the kitchen? No, you I know it? I I don't believe that it was Like, I don't know. I just don't see putting a pancake in an oven and and heating it up and that somehow being a new food. But... Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but I just couldn't find it. And I wondered if it exists, you know, if anyone knows about where these exist and what they're called. There is only one way to resolve this sensibly, is to have everyone who's listening go (laughs) make some crepes right now and then uh, freeze them, chuck them in the oven... Um, and report to us your results. I will do so as well, because I'm quite good at making crepes. I have the little, uh, what's, I forgot, I knew the name of the wooden, I don't know. the wooden thing that you swirl Spatula around. Thing. It's not, it's no, it has a name, uh, but I forgot it. So I'm embarrassed now. Uh, but yeah, basically I, I know crepes and, um, 
I will have to make them now and chuck them in the... That sounds wrong. That sounds really wrong. I don't want to do that. Ah, the things I do for love. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with... Me, Epka. And... You, Elaine. On today's show, we'll be talking about Distilled, World Breakers and Res Arcana. But first, some of your thoughts about the last podcast episode. First, and most, I think, importantly, we've had a few comments saying about how you, Efka, are absolutely correct that a square is indeed a rectangle. How See, do you feel about this? I, 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 well, I, I feel like, of course, yes. How, how can it not be a thing, right? Like, it, it only makes sense. Uh, a square is a type of rectangle. I don't know why we even had this argument, but apparently we had to. So I am vindicated, but but I don't even feel vindicated. I feel like, well, Natch, yeah. Like if you said a moose was an animal, and I was like, no, no, a moose is not an animal. Right, it's yeah, a, exactly, right? That, that kind of fungus. thing. It's a fungus. We also had a few comments saying about how much people enjoyed the interview with Adrian Tchaikovsky and how it's nice to see someone whose work you admire be in this, into the same thing as you are. Uh, right? If, That's great, uh, isn't it? Right, yeah. It's, yeah. it's super nice to, to hear that kind of thing. Uh, if you've not heard that interview yet, you can check it out on our last podcast episode. And if you have anything to say about this episode, it's Elaine at nopunincluded.com. Sam says... Efka's issue playing games online is familiar to me, though I've not really thought about why before. I find I can play games I know very well on BGA and it's much easier to remember the setup when switching between the board states. But I find learning or playing a new game with substantial board and game components difficult. The exact problem of not being able to see everything bothers me to the point of not really being able to properly play the game. This was incredibly irresponsible of me because I realized what you have to do before you talk about things like aphantasia is you have to realize that by speaking about it, you might have someone who is listening recognize for the first time that they also have it. Right. And I really should have prefaced with that and put some sort of a some sort of a warning in advance. But I just went, well, you know, I have this and um, and described it quite graphically and of course of course there were people listening for the first time going yeah i feel like that too so um i don't think that's a bad thing apologies if i brought a bit of a shock moment to you michael says Declaring that Rolling Heights is the second in a rolling meeples genre and then not mentioning what the first game in that genre was, was a bit of a tease. From Efka's description, I was reminded of Past the Pigs, which does involve rolling irregularly shaped creatures, though I doubt that's what he had in mind. Once again, I apologise. The first game with rolling meeples is Quetzal, which was brought to my attention by someone on Instagram when we posted a picture of us in front of a game of Rolling Heights and I've never played it so my natural kind of reviewer instinct is don't speak about what you don't know right like if I haven't I have no experience of this game so I can't comment on it all I know about it is that it too asks you to roll meeples on the subject of rolling meeples Russ says On the recent topic of rolling meeples and how that might have been developed via testing and statistics, here is my contribution from 2005 on exactly that topic. And then they give a link 
to a Board Game Geek thread about rolling different types of uh, board game component. And uh, w- what does that contain? Like, what what's in the link? What what what? It- what is extrapolated from the rolling of the components? At first, I was super excited by this because, you know, I love a statistic. Yeah. Right. And I love measuring things against other things. Uh, and so the, the one with the meeple. So there's a few different games that they've given they, and they've invited anyone else to contribute different components and how they roll. Yeah. Right. And the one that they've given with meeples is Carcass on the Castle. Mm. Right. But, and here is the but, so I was excited by this, but I am questioning their statistical methods, oh, methodology. Wow. Yes, okay. I, I am. And I'm, I'm sorry, Russ, but I am. Because there's a few different things that they've said that are necessary for mm-hmm. the testing. You know, the uh, parameters. Yes. Firstly, they say that they always use what they call the canonical box top drop which means that you're using the box that the game came in to roll the meeples right, into okay. it. Or, yeah. or the component, whatever component. Because there's other components like carcass on like houses and whatever. But you are using the box that the game came from. Now, the problem with that is that box sizes differ. And, and composition differs as well, right? Correct. And yeah. how would we know, how would we compare the two yes. if they're not the same? Right, yeah. So it's different for every game is what you're saying. Right. Second of all, uh, to do this uh, CBD, CBTD, as they call it, you need to put it on a firm carpet. Now, what does firm carpet mean? So I think our carpet in our house is pretty firm, but... The carpet that we had at work that was like a high traffic, you know, specialist carpet was way firmer than than this. So what do they mean by a firm carpet? Every carpet is different. So what you're proposing is a standardized environment to test all of the rolling components to determine the odds. But then those odds will not conform to like all of the games evenly, because like if you test in a standardized environment for rolling heights then when you play Rolling Heights, those odds might not be the same because you're not rolling yes. in the standardized environment. You're rolling in the little box provided, which yes. are also of different sizes. The other thing is, so the meeples that are in Carcassonne are specifically shaped, right? Mm. So they never land a certain way. They cartwheel, as Russ terms it, only a certain way, right? Because of the head, the head of the meeple is larger than a regular sized meeple mm-hmm. uh, because someone actually replied uh, with a comment saying like they could fall a different way and and but in Carcassonne they can't because of the shape of meeple because they have a bigger head so that is a problem because I still don't know <laughs> what the odds are what the odds are I can read out the odds for the Carcassonne meeples yeah. okay but can I sorry can I interrupt yes you? so could you not apply, though, the methodology used in that BGG list mm-hmm. and then do your own experiment specifically for rolling heights with the standardized environment being rolling heights, the rolling height meeples, the rolling height boxes, right? You could even do t- two tests, one for the lid of the box, one for the bottom of the box, right? Because who gets what? And you can determine whether the odds are different. Um, you could do this. I feel like other people have started doing this already and I appreciate their efforts. It's still a really interesting thread. I will read out what these statistics are for specifically the Carcassonne uh, meeples, right? So standing 
eight percent. They mm-hmm. fall standing, you know, with their arms and legs out, eight yeah, percent yeah. of the time. They fall flat on their side, sixty-one percent of the time, and then they cartwheel thirty-one percent of the time. So they are more likely, more than half likely, to land flat. Okay, but that's specifically in Carcassonne, right? Yes. Yeah. Whereas, whereas those odds will be different for rolling heights because even discounting everything else, the meeple shapes are just different. I think I think someone needs to do this experiment. <laughs> I still think the thread is really cool, though. Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to put the link to that thread in the episode description. And if someone who's listening wants to do, like, their own testing, you know, for rolling heights, has a copy of rolling heights, wants to do their own testing and and see what the odds are, we would welcome to hear the results. We had some discussion about the so-called shelf of shame and what it actually means and whether that phrase is the best term to describe it, including a link to an article about the anti-library or tsundoku, the idea of books being there for future use and urgency to read them not being the reason for purchase. Rapid says... I have, I wouldn't call them complicated, but mixed feelings on the whole shelf of shame. Like, on one hand, yeah, it's a stark reminder that I buy too many games and should be a bulwark against further purchases. On the other hand, it's not as simple as games I haven't played but want to. For me, it's a lot of times unplayed games are the ones I bought knowing it was aspirational. So I don't exactly make time quickly to play it. I guess calling it shelf of shame to me just feels a little overly negative and I already have enough negative self-talk that I don't need to feel down by looking at my board game shelf. Ha ha. And Daniel says, I think there's quite a bit of detached irony baked into the term, but I do have complex thoughts in trying to reconcile my want for sustainability in the hobby with my joy of collecting games separate from actually playing games. A little shame is a good thing, though. We should let ourselves experience that conflict. And Gino Babe says, just listen to the interview with Paul Dean and really enjoyed his perspective on not being a board game pizza. I feel like fans sometimes forget that board game reviewers constantly need to keep up with the newest games and how it can easily lead to burnout. I'm glad he's able to enjoy games without the pressure of having an opinion anymore. It's also great perspective to have being a consumer of board games and trying not to feel like we need to keep up with the newest slash hottest game out there. It's the ideal mindset to take to help control collecting slash hoarding. I wanted to read out that last comment uh, along with the others because I think there was a consensus that the shame part is less of you should be ashamed of yourself and more it's a shame I haven't played this yet. And I kind of dig that. Yeah, I feel kind of embarrassed a little bit because I think I, I always misconstrued that, you know. Um, there, there, there was always an element of me, well, like, why feel shame, you know? There's, like, why are we in this position to begin with, right? Like, shame is not a positive emotion. But that is, I guess, my mistake. Shame can be a positive emotion, right? Like um, someone else on our Discord said, let me just enjoy my shame, you know, <laughs> like, and, and that's kind of fine because it gives you, I guess, a chance to reflect on yourself and and that is a positive thing or that can be a positive thing, right? But at the same time, I feel like um, shame can result in peer pressure, right? Um, and and the, I still question whether it is a positive term overall because how a person responds to a term like that individually, right? It, it, it is, you know, up in the air. There is, there is no 
way to predict that everyone's just gonna be like oh yeah shame you know i i'll, I'll you know revel in some shame and then and i'll feel better about things or more positive things or i'll i'll extract something you know about myself some people can just feel shame in that negative way i think a lot of people do in the world right i certainly do because i was raised in a in a country of a certain christian denomination is <laughs> very often associated with the feeling of shame uh and and so you know it's hard to shake that right it's hard to shake that perception that that when something is shameful it's 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 always a negative emotion and so that's why i don't know whether it is a positive term i guess it's good that people extract positivity from it but but to me it's always like uh it's, i don't know it just sounds like a bunch of negative emotions and you know just the miserable environment that's what i associate with the feeling of shame people seem to have had some thoughts about the splotter games uh-huh lucas Surprise. says <laughs> right yeah lucas says horseless carriage the first criticism i heard and was a bit worried about was that there was a worry the best way to build your factory could be solved and that the puzzle would get stale. I'm glad to say I don't think that's the case as the starting spec demands are going to have a huge swing on the game. Similarly, trying to push a spec to be innovative that other factories aren't prepared to handle can cause you to try to turn the focus of your factory. I do enjoy this and the whole spatial puzzle is more complex. However, the lack of interaction with others directly in that puzzle is an overall loss compared to some of their other games. I highly suggest playing The Great Zimbabwe. Latro says... I'm not sure I already told this before, but in one of those cases of this game may be saying stuff about real life that it may not even be obvious to the designer. My one of two times I played Food Chain Magnet, I was absolutely destroyed by some other player that knew what they were doing, which apparently is not selling anything for about three rounds or so. See, I was this mum and pop operation. I decided to open a location in a nice place where I could serve the locals what they wanted and maybe I could sell enough to think about opening a new one down the line. They, they were building the org chart of doom. When they finally moved in, they dominated everything and I never got to sell anything ever again. They were everywhere. That's when I realised that I was doing that, a mum and pop local business, and they were doing McDonald's or Burger King. I think that just further reinforces my point that uh, splotter games are often art installations. <laughs> you experience it and, you know, and then it's... Uh, it's you've had that experience. Do you need it again? Mm. I don't. Some people do. You know, some people like making the org charts of doom. I think uh, Chris S also has a good comment uh, regarding the way that you can ruin yourself very early in food chain magnet. Uh, they say, yes, this is my problem. Not that the better player always wins, but that the better player can essentially eliminate competition so early in the game, whilst I, I mean the worst player, has to just sit and watch the game for hours. Yeah, there is that. And I guess that really, you know, sort of shines a light on the joy of capitalism. Um, here's here's a moment that I want to add about horseless carriage personally. Uh, I appreciated all those comments and I thought they were great, but uh, not to distract from them. But my moment came after we recorded this episode. And then uh, John from John Gets Games, who I played Horseless Carriage with, he also does this little bit on his Patreon where he shares opinions about, you know, the games that he played, uh, sort of recounts what happened and stuff like that. And he mentioned that 
uh, for him, the game was so slow uh, that like because there was like we didn't use webcams. We just used voice. Right. And we had it on this like browser, basically um, uh, specific uh, integration of Holstein's carriage. Uh, so, you know, th- some some of the individual bits where you're just playing by yourself and trying to tessellate uh, rectangle pieces together uh, were so slow that he would just tab out and watch some YouTube, you know, like watch a video about something, you know, and wait for everyone to be done. And when they were done, he'd be like, OK, I'll enjoy some of the game now and then back to YouTube. And And when I realized that he was having that experience and what I was having was just like, rounds and rounds and rounds of like intense hair tearing uh you know agonizing over like how to put these pieces together we were having two totally different moments uh and so there there is also that so I, i think i've only seen one side of horseless carriage uh and there are many many other sides available uh but I guess I'm eager to play more. I'm I'm eager to see whether that how that translates into a real world environment, and whether you do sometimes just sit and wait for others to be done with you know putting a rectangle next to another rectangle and going does this rectangle fit? No, it doesn't. I'll try another rectangle. But to answer the first comment, I think there is probably a lot of room for being disruptive in a game like this because. Uh, the way that uh, car invention happens in that game is that people just basically decide what kind of uh, line of thought almost they want to push, whether they want to focus on safety or speed or, you know, comfort, stuff like that. And based on that, that's the parts that come in and become available for your cars because it's the dawn of automotive industry. No one knows what car they're making, right? So uh, because different parts become available, right in different games i uh, i think there there is like a big chance that if if there is some sort of dominant strategy it can just be pushed to the side by i don't know just a completely different path emerging from different players joining the table uh, but that's a that's a kind of uh, worry about any game i think that has that competitive edge and is you know micromanaging economy or whatever if you play with the same people long enough they'll figure out how they think things are effective and then just, you know, keep repeating that over and over and over again until it becomes boring. Was one of the components that you could add to your car a record player? I don't know if there was a record player, but there was definitely like a honking thing. You a know? honking? A goose? Yeah, a goose. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. you could add a goose. Yeah, just strap a real life goose to the front of your car, you know. Ah, how times have changed. You couldn't do that anymore. Thank you so much for all your comments. If you have anything to say to us, email elaine at nopunincluded.com. Still to come, we have World Breakers and Distilled, but our first game is Res Arcana, which comes from publisher Sandcastle Games by designer Thomas Lerman and artist Julian Deval. There was a moment when you won your first game of Res Arcana, And you just got up from the table and said, I need to go make a cup of tea. And you went into the kitchen and I heard you going. (sighs) 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 And I was like, wow, (laughs) 
I find that kind of game quite stressful. Yeah, so that's the odd part. So what Resurcana is, if people are familiar with uh, Race for the Galaxy, a classic uh, card game engine deck builder uh, set in space, uh, then you'll know that it shares the same designer, Tom Lemon, uh, uh, who designed Race for the Galaxy, Roll for the Galaxy, other games... Uh, some 18xx games and also Resurcana, which is kind of like a distillation of of that sort of idea of engine building with cards, but pared down to these like real, almost Knizia esque essential elements where you only get one. So the theme of this game is like your mages battling over s. It's nonsense, right? Uh, uh, but but the but. The, the principle is like, yeah, you have a mage card and that card is going to give you like some sort of a special ability. Uh, but then you have like a deck of just eight cards. It is very likely that over the course of the game, you will not even play all of your eight cards. In fact, the last time we played, you played four of your eight cards and you won, right? I did. Um, so so this is this is a really pared down small game where like each card you play will hopefully combo with another card that you have and that will combo with a third card that you have and you will buy this like big tile that has more abilities and provides you with victory points uh, and that will give you abilities that will combo with all your cards and suddenly you have an unstoppable engine in just a couple of turns um race for the galaxy with just four cards would would you say that that's a fair description of the game with eight cards. Well, yeah, I mean, but using the example where you won with just four. Nine was, if you include your mage. Well, nine if you include your mage. So, um, and and you know what? Like, oftentimes the mages themselves, they, they're not that different from the cards that you play. Because the cards are called artifacts and the naming and naming conventions in this game are just annoying. But let's let's get past that, right? Uh, so the cards you play are called artifacts and the mage itself isn't that different from an artifact it's just that you start the game with it and then you don't have to pay you know anything for it it's your starting card right and i guess the other difference is that uh when you play Resurcana, you sort of get to have a peek at your deck and then choose what uh what mage you're gonna have because you get a choice of two then you pick one you start with that then you draw three cards from your deck of eight and then you just play cards one at a time but um what what's clever about it i think is is just so how condensed it is and that like every every little move matters uh and you know it'll have like some mundane abilities like a card you'll play will be like oh you know during income you'll now generate one fire resource and there's like five resources in the game there's fire uh water which is called calm uh, uh fire is called Ilan. Ilan, yeah. Then there's death, which is just a mushroom. And then there's life, which is just a leaf. And there's gold, which is like not a universal resource, but it's like a harder to get resource. Um, because you can also spend gold to buy some cards that give you victory points. And it's just a race. The first 10 victory points uh, at the end of the round, you check for like whether anyone has 10 victory points. And if they do, the game ends. And if no one has more than 10, then they win. That's it. Uh, but yeah, like you'll you'll play a card and you'll say, oh, during income, you'll get, you know, uh, one calm. And 
Uh, also, maybe you can convert one life into two death or something like that. I don't know. I'm just making it up, right? And they'll be like, that's that, right? But somehow, you stack these cards together, and very quickly and very progressively, this this like unstoppable engine emerges where, you know... On turn one, you do a thing, and on turn five, you're like, I activate this to tap that, to move this here, and then to get these resources, convert them to buy this thing. That gives me victory points. Now, these things count as victory points as well, and suddenly you're unstoppable, and you go, boom, over. I know that you have a particular aversion to games that are uh, very confrontational in their nature, uh, and and sort of chess-like games where it's like Magic the Gathering, where it's one person's, person faces off against another person in a kind of a tactical battle. You struggle with those because they give you anxiety, right? And I'm not saying this isn't true. I fully agree with you that this game feels like that. But on the surface, what I described theoretically shouldn't feel like that because what I've described is, an, is a sort of isolated, I play cards on my own side of the table to make things combine and happen, you know? Why do you think it gives you the heebie-jeebies? I think with a game like this, you're never quite sure of what the board state is, Mm. the the play state. You're never quite sure because the cards are hidden. It's not like chess because chess is in in the open all the time, right? You're never quite sure if the other player has something up their sleeve which is going to mess up your plans and I get to a point where I think oh I'm doing all right Mm -hmm. right and then that's when I start to get the (laughs) heebie-jeebies because I think am I just uh chucking the water out before I've bought the bucket do you know what that's not a phrase you know what I mean Mm. uh and I I don't know whether it's a feeling of like excitement or anticipation or but I I can't I can't separate what the feelings are inside Mm. me and they're all muddled together it doesn't matter who I'm playing with like I feel much better playing with you or someone I know or something that's not kind of tournament based Mm. not there's no stress attached intrinsically to it Mm. if it's just a casual game i feel much better about that but still uh not being able to know what's going on what did help me though was because we drafted yes uh, we played a version of this game where you draft uh so you have four cards each and then you take one past the other four you do that four times, I guess, and then you do it again. Yeah, and that forms your starting deck. That, so, you, yeah, that forms your starting eight cards. Um, so you already know exactly what the other player has mm. because you've given it to them, apart from the, their first picks, which yeah. you're not going to know. So there's only going to be two cards that you've never seen before. And that helped because I kind of had some idea of what you had. And I I did, I was kind of a little bit uh, aggro in in that I took cards that I didn't think necessarily would be helpful to me in my game, but that I didn't want you to have because I thought that would be worse. Yeah. Um, So that that did help knowing, knowing that and being able to look at the mages first before we started drafting and having an idea of what the two different abilities on the cards did um, gave me a bit more 
uh, idea, I guess, of what the expectation was. So, and how I how I could build that deck. So when like when I play this, right? I think that the moment uh, where the game becomes feeling quite intense for me is that sensation of like where because because you need to build that momentum so quickly, right? You need to have this thing that you're working on, this little engine, you know, cobbled together from just a scanned few cards. You needed to balloon and just, you know, go, right? And for that to happen, right, it's very easy to end up in a situation where it just deflates and doesn't do anything. So for that to happen, you have to be so precise, and figure out the exact sequence of how you activate the cards. And there's also, like, there's this great point of tension where uh, there is a list of magic items in the middle. So they're, like, abilities that are useful, and you get to have one of them. But first tips is to the person who passes first. Uh, And also, because there's, like, uh, 10 of them or whatever, 11 with all the expansions added together, uh, you you're not quite sure whether you are taking the right one and whether that's going to be the thing that you are going to need on the next round because the variety of them and what they do is so great. One lets you convert resources. Another lets you make gold. A third will give you a free resource, right? And And I think you struggled with that a little bit, that plethora of things to choose from and and do. Mm. Am I right? Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, it was was a little distracting and disjointing and and I I found Resurkana... Very enjoyable to play, but very difficult to be good at. Um, I'm not surprised you trounced me so much. But you won the first twice that we played it. Yeah, but that was like, you know, we didn't... As soon as we started drafting, I had no chance, right? As soon as we started drafting this game, you were trouncing me. So um, there, there is an element of like being super, super, super precise and evaluating all of the options and actually picking what the best one is for you. So this is an intense game, right? And and on the face of it, it's just like, oh, mages, get some elements, right? Uh, And um, the reason reason I wanted to talk about it, because Resurkana is not a particularly new game. Uh, It's not like old, but I think it came out 2019, I guess. But what you have now you have like the game and two expansions right adding more cards and and just like a little bit more rules and a little bit more variety right you can pick the whole thing together so cheap it was like the game with both of the expansions uh, i don't know maybe there's like some sort of a discount on it now where they're trying to get rid of stock but it was like 35 pounds for everything right and i was just surprised about how much you got out of that and 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 how rounded out that experience feels uh and i know i don't go on about price a lot but like i i felt like if there was a time to get res arcana that time might be now because because it's 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 very cheap and what you get out of it for a person who's looking for that like uh card game that is that is not directly confrontational, but it feels confrontational because because of how tactically precise you have to be. Because there's not a lot of ways you can mess with your opponent. There are some cards that will let you basically... They'll force your opponent to spend resources. And you can even like get into builds that really, really kind of focuses on that. But aside from that, there is 
nothing you can do apart from be faster and more efficient than everyone else. Yeah, so when I took the cards that I didn't really need, they were all cards that would have let you steal my resources. And I'd already built a plan of what resources I needed to be able (laughs) to play the cards and to win. And what I like about this game a lot is that in contrast to another game that's a card game that uses elements as resources, uh, it's not about defeating your partner, it's about winning yourself. Did, no, did that make sense? It does make so sense, So you yeah. don't have to make them lose life or lose points or lose anything, you just have to build up the points to win the game yourself. Mm. And I found that a lot more comfortable, I think, uh, because I was just focused on what I was doing and how to do it as quickly as I possibly could. Uh, because it is, it, it, there are only eight cards. You're not, you're not, you know, trying to go all through your deck to find the cards that you're looking for and that, oh, I really want this card. That would be perfect if it came out. And there's even cards in there that let you, I had a card that let me look at the top three cards of my deck and put them back in any order. And mm. I only had five cards in that deck because you take three to begin with. So that was perfect. It, it did exactly what I needed it to do. And I really like that about the game, that it's more about how you're playing than how your opponent's playing. I will add a little note on, on the expansions, right? There are a couple of expansions uh, Lux at Tenebrae and something about Pearls in Latin. They almost add nothing to the game, but, but I think. Uh, at the price that they are going for, it's like, at this point, it's like, why not? Sure, add the expansions on. But also, uh, they they add a lot of variety and, uh, like, there's a new resource and, uh, like, the second expansion extends the game uh, to 13 points. The first expansion uh, adds some rules towards tightening the whole experience for two players or widening it for four players, has the ability for five players... Um, they overall they don't add anything major, um, but they're they're so cheap and like together as a package, it kind of made sense to me, you know. Uh, and also, this is a really nice benefit. Uh, they must have they either changed this uh, later as the expansions were printed and they reprinted the base game, or this was some incredible forward thinking. But like, uh, there is an insert in the box. Um, a surprisingly functional insert. Uh, and it actually fits the two expansions perfectly. So now I have everything in one box and it feels so nice and condensed and it isn't a big box to begin with. So I don't know, like my only real criticism of Rez Arcana is the theme and the naming of things. There's a monument or an artifact or a magic item or a mage or a place of power and they all sound the same. Uh, also, one of the resources is called Calm, but I much prefer calling it Clam, because that's funnier. When you explained the rules about the pearls, I was like, oh, so it's gold plus. And you were like, well, no, it, it, no, it might. It, and I was like, no. It, it, and then we played and you were like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's gold plus. It's, because you get, because it's harder to get. It's a difficult resource to get, yeah. potentially. You can't sort of swap it for into a pearl, other resources into a pearl. Uh, but it also gives you victory points. Right, that was so momentous in the very last game we played. We only played one game with the uh, second expansion, but I I was just completely wiped off the floor with those pearls because, like, you you got uh, uh, the place of power that basically said every pearl on a card is worth two points, and also 
in addition to the one point it's already worth. And I looked at your board and you had nothing. And then suddenly you had four pearls <laughs> on cards. And I was like, wait a minute. So, so three times four is 12. And you have the first player token, which is a point, And you're about to pass. So I lost. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this, this, I think you struggled with this a lot more than I did because I went into it, especially with the draft going, okay, well, this is my focus. This is what I need to do. Mm. I hope that you don't take what I want. Yeah. That, that was it effectively, yeah, right? Yeah. This is what I need to do. This is how I get there. And I think you just saw all the op different options on the board. I even knew what magic items I wanted and yeah. what scrolls I wanted before, you know, before we got into this game. And I think there was, your brain just went, there's so much possibility here. What do I do with all of this? Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably why I, I won that game. Yeah, no, I was just a kid in the sandbox going, if I combine this L shape to this, you know, <laughs> T shape, I can build a, I don't know, goose goose yeah mm -hmm. right and i was i was sort of tinkering away at it whilst you were efficiently manufacturing my destruction uh which uh i don't know i think tells you something about this game but but also uh had a lot of fun with it you know it, it was it was enjoyable to be like forced into this pressure cooker environment of like there's just a couple of cards you need to make them work now now right um so that was i don't know unique uh and good and tense red skeezix says with regard to res arcana i like to play the draft variant as i've only played the random mess variant and the mechanisms feel good but the decks felt pretty unbalanced by the randomness it was two full rounds before i was able to get any resources in the opening part of the round Oh, so like this game is, as any card game, you know, it, it has the same problem of a card game as any card game, which is that when you draw cards, they're a bit random. And I guess there's an extra layer of randomness here because it's like you couldn't, you couldn't draw anything. You, you like just dealt eight cards, right? And, and, and I think people always chase that sort of like, you know, like perfectly balanced card game where every card is almost equal but actually that game would be pretty dull i think so mm -hmm. um yeah no the draft makes it better if 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 you want to be super sharp about this game uh but actually i think i preferred it playing without the draft because it gave me a little bit of a leg up uh so you know it's down to every person Still to come, we have Distilled, but first let's talk about a game that's not to be confused with something from the World of Warcraft TCG. World Breakers Advent of the Canet is a review copy that's self-published from designer Eliamir with a plethora of artists. So World Breakers is... I, the first thing that I want to say about it is there's a note from the publisher slash designer uh, in the box Uh, so this was a kickstarted game and and in the rule book it says you know thank you uh to everyone who backed it and supported it you know publishing a game was a dream of mine for 30 years which i thought ah that's really sweet but also this is a derivative of magic the gathering and it is just uh, such an oversaturated field and and as a, as much as i feel for a like a really like sort of you know heartwarming and fluffy kind of expression of hey i did this you know like how in the world 
are you gonna separate yourself from literally thousands and thousands and thousands of similar games and when you taught the rules to me i was not filled with confidence because i was like well this sounds almost identical to matt like it's not pulling away from the formula uh, in a way that's like Android Netrunner or, you know, some of the other Deckmaster series games like Vampire the Eternal Struggle, which original name, not even going to say, too controversial. Um, and so it took me actually playing it to go, oh, I get it. Okay, that's that's why this is pretty good. And it really is pretty good. I I was very surprised, very... Um, just had a really good time with it. You, do you know what I mean? I had, I had like, a moment of, like, this just works and clicks on, on such a fundamental level whilst on the surface seeming like a game that is... You know, this is, there's a thousand other games like this, right? Uh, but... I think I think what makes World Breakers work. So if you're not familiar with Magic the Gathering, I'm not going to explain Magic the Gathering. It's Magic the Gathering. I think most people are sort of familiar with Magic. So this is similar in a lot of ways, but but in in some ways I think it really matters in how it differs. And so first of all, it just feels so clean. It's it's such a well uh, designed rule system that, like, unlike other... I, I remember even with, like, very clean ones, like, you know, Keyforge, designed by Richard Garfield. There's a sense that sometimes there's, like, a hitch in 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 the wheels and, like, they stop spinning and you kind of go, wait, how does this work exactly, you know? And this just flows, right? Like, there is there is a breeziness and an ease to it that that makes it just very pleasant to play you know uh you taught me the rules i didn't even need to read the rule book and it's it's like every rule instinctively clicked right so that was do you think that's because you played magic maybe partly because of that but but also magic has a lot of weird interactions right i I wasn't just I, i didn't just play magic i was I was a judge, you know, I was only a level one judge, you know, but but I passed my judge test and everything like that, right? And I was a tournament organizer. So I'm not going to say like, hey, I was never, you know, any good at magic. You know, I had some fundamental understanding of competitive play, right? But like, I wasn't ever, you know, capable of being good at competitive play. Uh, but I understood the rules more than anything. I think that was my strong suit of it. And I understood, like, when you need to go, oh, you think you know how this works, but you actually don't, right? Because actually, rule this, that, whatever, you know, and there there are a lot of things in Magic that are like that, where you think you know how it works, but you actually don't. And maybe it's like this here as well, but when you play Magic, right, uh, and this is unlike some of the other games that are derivatives of magic whether you know the rules or you don't doesn't really matter as long as the rules are presented in such a way that you don't have to stop and go wait a minute how does this work right uh and i think that's the key and important part of of a really elegant smooth design a design that feels smooth to play it's that you don't need to stop you just keep going because you go ah no that's how it works whether you're right or wrong doesn't matter right intuitive (laughs) yeah it's intuitive to play right and here i got that similar sort of sense it just 
feels very smooth, very lean, and very intuitive, and you just know what to do when you're playing. So that's step number one, why I think Well Break is actually pretty good. Step number two is that the cards themselves are so interesting, you know? So Well Break is, is not like a CCG model where there's no randomized packs, and it's not like an LCG model where there's like, oh, you know, there's a core set, and then and this and that, and these packs come out, and they're not randomized, but they're still packs, right? It's a game published on Kickstarter. It's self-contained. It comes in a box. There's four factions. There's a solo mode. You know, you get everything. That's it, period, right? Uh, I know that there is an expansion announced that's going to go to Kickstarter, but yeah, again... I, it's a card game. People want new cards, but they're definitely not coming out at a volume where they're just going to, you know, overwhelm everything and you're going to have to buy a pack every month or whatever. It's just, it's very self-contained. What does right? the expansion have in it? I don't know yet. I think it's just, the expansion has been announced, but what I expect... Is it new factions? I think it's probably going to be new factions. So there's four factions that come in the game and a solo mode. And some uh, modules for like drafting and stuff like that, you know, different variants of play. So everything's self-contained. So that's really, really nice. Uh, but the third and most appealing part to me personally is where it differs from magic. And, and these subtle differences that don't seem that big on the surface actually create like very different play experiences and that ties to point number two that the cards are really fun right so we on on last episode's bonus episode we talked about sky tear horde and my criticism of it was that it was uh, magic the gathering but like you know it was masquerading as a sort of a tower defense game and and the cards were just dull and i think i didn't emphasize that point enough my criticism wasn't that it was so derivative of Magic the Gathering, even though it, it so obviously and incredibly and unashamedly was, right? My point is that it was a derivative of Magic the Gathering that was bad Magic the Gathering, right? Whereas something like World Breakers, you know, it doesn't just change some, you know, rules and then therefore is slightly different, but also kind of like Magic. I think it understands what makes magic combat system work and presents something entirely different a new puzzle and therefore it ch it changes like the tempo and play of it right so where where it does differ from magic it, it, it i think it's very engaging and the cards that are in the game support those differences in a way that feels really moorish and like I can do this, this card does that, I can combo these together. Oh my god, I just created a board state that's like really, really interesting or cool, you know. Uh, so so it feels really intriguing to play and it feels fresh to play. And I think, I think that's one of its strengths. Now, again, more about the game because I've just gone on sort of, you know, surface level stuff. Uh, but basically, uh, much like in Magic, you, you have a deck, your opponent has a deck, um, and uh, there are some pre-built decks, there's a little bit of deck construction, but the four factions currently present in the game sort of each focus on a card game trope, I guess, you know, one's a more kind of control deck where you're playing the longer game, you're deterring your opponent from, like, gaining advantage and, and building up a lot of uh, resources or mana. What's the mana in this game called? Can you remind me? Methium. 
Thank you. So yeah, you're 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 you know building up your reserves of methium. Whereas there's another faction that's uh, very like needy. Like it'll it'll get in there for like little points of damage, bit by bit, like the damage here, damage there, damage everywhere. You know, and suddenly like it avalanches on you. But the essence of it is that unlike in magic, you're not trying to reduce your opponent's life total from twenty to zero. You're trying to collect ten power, and the way you get power is basically via a couple of means. So you can your attack your opponent with the uh, cards that you played on your board. Like if they're they're not creatures, they're called something else. Uh, but basically, you know, you're kind of a standard attacking type. Followers. Or, followers, there you go, right? So uh, you're attacking uh, with your followers, and if they're unblocked, for each one that is unblocked, you'll gain one power. There's also cards that are called... Locations. Uh, thank you, Elaine. Uh, and uh, they're basically kind of like uh, your little encampments where um, you have these tokens, and as an action, you can take off a token, and it'll do something good for you, right? And the deeper down the card you go, because normally they come out with, like, free tokens, uh, the deeper down the card you go... Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, the better, the better the reward is, generally. Not always, but most of the time, right? So uh, if you attack your opponent with a follower and that follower is unblocked, you can also take off one of these pips from the locations, therefore negating them that benefit from the card that they've played. But there's also this really nice tempo uh, that is inbaked into the game systems where each turn you basically take an action and you're going to get two actions around. Um, and that action could be to play a card, it could be to attack, it could be to draw a card or to gain some methium. Um, but it sort of zigzags where, uh, you're, let's say your opponent's the first player, they take the first action, then you take the second action, then they take the third action, then you take the fourth action, and then there's an end of round kind of everybody gains a little bit of methium. Uh, do you draw a card? I think you maybe draw a card. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's that little reset, but then this board that tracks who goes next flips over, and if it was you who took the last turn of the round, you will also be the person that takes the first turn of the next round, meaning there are moments in the game where you get two actions in a row, and it creates this sort of really interesting tempo where... You, at some point, you know you're going to get that double whammy. And also, in between, in the middle of that whammy, you'll get, like, a little bit of resources and maybe an extra card, you know? Like, it'll inject you with that little boost, right? And so much of the game revolves around understanding that tempo and managing that tempo. But also, um, like, the game knows its systems really well. Obviously, there isn't such a thing as locations in Magic the Gathering. That's a totally unique element to world breakers and it, it leverages that and it makes those cards interesting like i said some cards have a progression where like the first pip you take off a location is you get a little bit of something then a little bit more than the last one is really good some are the opposite of that and and you know they'll have an effect they'll say oh you know you can have this really good pip on the card but you can sacrifice that pip as you play that card to maybe 
sacrifice one of your opponent's followers, right? So it immediately like puts a decision onto you as you play it. You know, you can have a good thing or a different thing that's useful. And you know, there the point being is that the cards are interesting. The cards have effects that are tantalizing. They always ask questions. You know, they they offer multiple solutions to different problems. They turn combat around on its head because it's not about necessarily being able to destroy your opponent's followers as so much as if you can block them they can they can't gain power and if they attack they tapped out so if you block them successfully and your block has survived you can attack back and now you can gain power and you're getting that advantage right and it also interestingly um flips the whole element of how much attack a follower has as opposed to how much health because you know having a lot of attack is pretty good in magic because for each attack you deal one damage to your opponent here it doesn't matter as long as it's unblocked you get one power right so attack is only useful for reducing your opponent's followers health total um because health is tracked um you know outside of combat it persists um so there's just a lot of really meaty really tangible things but on top of all of that this package is wrapped up in what i think is really nice artwork um you know it's it's very evocative and there is a pretty interesting setting you know it's it sort of riffs on real world history um uh but but also adds like fantastical magical elements and what's really nice about the cards is that when when it does refer to something real world historical like marco polo because for some reason one of the factions is led by marco polo uh, you know it'll say oh this is a real world thing and then when it is something invented for this universe they'll be like oh this is a fabrication and here's some lore behind this yeah there's a symbol on the cards so there's like a quill symbol that tells you this is actual real world information and then there's like a banner symbol that says this is information within the world of the game. Uh, so I, I like how it makes that differentiation. I like also, like I said about um, the other game that we were talking about, I like how the goal of it isn't to reduce your opponent's life total, but to increase your own points total. I like that much better as a model for a game. And when you were talking about the tempo of the game, uh, I think one thing that makes it feel a lot different is that the cards that you play don't have, and the rule book says they don't have specifically summoning sickness. So they use that term. They know what that means, uh, where you can't play that card as soon as, sorry, you can't use that card as soon as you've played it. You can in this game. Mm. So it changes that tempo in that uh, your opponent doesn't know anything before or you can do something about it. <laughs> do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. play a card, you do something with it. Uh, and and also the fact that you have these four turns before anything refreshes or untaps or whatever you want to call it, before you can use it again. So if you attack on the first turn of that round, your opponent has another three turns potentially to attack you before the round ends and everything refreshes. Right, yeah. Uh, and you can't block with something that's exhausted. Mm. So I think that makes a big difference. Uh, there's there's a lot less kind of instant tension than there is in something like magic, where it's play, 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 block, attack, attack, block. You know, 
there's a lot of build-up, mm. uh, and particularly with the locations as well, because certain factions really utilise these locations and what they can do um, and give the other player who is potentially attacking something to focus on as well. Uh, and I like that a lot. I like how different each faction feels and how the puzzle to working out how they function best evolves as you play the game. One of the factions you played is really cool because there's this um, extra system. So you, you want to play a card, you know, you pay its cost in Methium and you play it. Voila. But there is one more element. So there are guilds effectively in the game and each faction is like a member of their own guild. Uh, and so if you're not deck constructing, it sort of doesn't matter that much. But one of the factions really riffs on that system where every card also has like a guild level that you need to achieve to be able to play it, right? And to advance in a rank of a guild, you simply need to take an action and pay some Methium. And also some cards will let you just advance mm. in guild level. And you choose which guild you want to advance on. And if you're just playing with pre-constructed decks, you're just going to advance in on the one guild, guild that you have in your deck, right? Um, so one of the factions you were playing deliberately knocked itself down in guild rank, which I thought was so clever because you had cards that mitigated that back and forth. But also whenever you knock yourself down, you also got an advantage with that that like made it easier for you to pay for something or, or you know, uh, do some sort of an ability. And I thought that that was so clever. And once again, the game, knowing its systems and 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 leveraging them within the card design in ways that felt fresh and clever mm, how different uh they all feel uh and you trashed me every time we played this game you absolutely trashed me um it, again it it's that kind of head-to-head -head card game that doesn't make me feel necessarily comfortable i think it's an excellent game uh, mm. i really do i think it's clean it's smooth it flows well uh, the, like you said you know the tempo is is great and interesting um but it's just something that gives <laughs> this style of playing gives me the heebie-jeebies for whatever reason i had a super time playing with you um i really enjoyed myself but I don't think it's a game that I would pour myself into enough to ever become good at it. Oh God, no! I, it was immediately obvious to me that it's like Alex are going to enjoy this, but but you're going to appreciate it, but not enjoy it because it's just not a genre of games you have ever gelled with. But I'm glad you were able to, you know, at least have a nice time with it, uh, and I I really appreciated this. I I really appreciated having the chance to try this and play this and tinker with this. I hope. Uh, people pick this up when the next kicks if if you have interest in magic the gathering style games uh, it's very self-contained I, I think it's pretty good it's more innovative than it seems uh and it's just really really elegantly designed i think it's very good uh and i'm not going to mention who said this but a person outside of this podcast has said that you know but you know it doesn't matter if sky Hoard is derivative because that's 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 the game that gives you magic the gathering you know solo experience if you want it to be boring but Worldbreakers also has a solo mode which i haven't tried but i'm sure we'll cover it in a future bonus episode of the podcast uh once we get around to it so there you go, person whose name I'm not saying out loud, who I know is listening. Uh, there are better games than Sky Tear Horde. <laughs>
Lastly, we have a game that's great for teaching kids about hard spirits. Distilled is a review copy that comes from publisher Paverson Games by designer Dave Beck and artist Eric Evanson. I'm sorry, what? What, about the teaching kids about hard spirits? Well, see, the game, right, is age 14 plus. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you're 14 plus... But you're not already, yet 18. You already probably know about hard spirits. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but not yet 18 or 21 or whatever the legal age is in your country. Uh, you you could play this game and learn about the hard spirits. That's not how they're no? going to learn. No. Is that, is that not the point of this game? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, so not only is this a review copy, I, I'd just like to preface with a few... Uh, disclaimers. Uh, so we met the designer Dave Beck uh, at a convention in Tabletop Scotland, uh, whom uh, I guess, you know, I, I don't think they had designed this game at that point yet. And uh, we uh, we just, uh, we briefly played one game of Burgle Brothers. And, and that was that. And I sort of vaguely remembered this interaction existing because designer of Distilled Dave Beck uh remarked upon uh our dog because we said we just got a dog and he said oh what's the dog's name and i said bessie and he looked at me and said isn't bessie a cow's name uh and so i'll never forget that it didn't I, influence us about the game no no not at all but just just wanted to put that out there uh, and the second thing is that we d- didn't just get a review copy uh we got a review copy of the base game and then i was like i wonder what it's like with the expansion because the kickstarter version came with the expansion of uh like it added like a whole new region to the game and i wanted to try that and see if it changed it up so i asked could you send us that expansion as well and so we got like everything that came with the kickstarter which was like metal coins metal cubes a a playmat more on the playmat later uh metal first player marker a shot glass some coasters you know the whole shebang so uh we got all of that with uh with a copy of this game as well all right. So with that said, if this game is not about uh, teaching kids about hard spirits, what is it about? I think it's about um, frustration uh, of of being a, a small distillery owner, right? That, that That's what it boiled down to me. Uh, because it's like you have these sort of aspirational games from time to time where you're like, Oh, you're you're the owner of a mom and pop such and such in in such and such industry. Like you're a small time baker. Go bake some bread, get some victory points, right? Or uh, viticulture. That's the same, but about wine, right? Oh, you're a mom and pop winemaker in Italy. Make some wine with the mamas and the papas, right? Uh, so it com- very comfortably falls within this sphere, this genre of aspirational. Uh, small business owners making their own thing, right? Um, where it differs from these games is that normally what you get in that in that genre of game is the sort of sensation of things building and growing and like your small empire is becoming bigger and you're becoming a titan of the industry or I don't know, something, right? Like there's there is a sense of growth. Distilled in it, you make hard spirits, right? But 
your ability to make hard spirits never improves through the course of the game. Like, it improves maybe somewhere down towards the last round in a seven-round game where you feel like you finally got a handle of things. But that, by that point, it doesn't matter so much because the game is about to wrap up, right? So it's it's a, it's got a rhythm to it that feels unlike anything else within this genre. But also, I will say that whilst I think because of the nature of this sort of small-time industry doing a thing, you know, aspirational game, I think a lot of people will enjoy this because it's a pretty competent game, it it sits within a unique space, it's about alcohol, which I think people enjoy playing games about alcohol. I don't know. I mean, mean, making alcohol, because viticulture, right? That's that's a pretty big game. That's about making alcohol, right? So I think think there's a lot of appeal within this game that's just going to make people enjoy uh, experiencing it. And I think it's going to be pretty popular. I did not get on with this game uh, much. Some, not much. I know that you have way more than I have, right? So there's some differing opinions about that. Definitely. But I like Viticulture more than you do. That's so, true. And it, and it is, it's not a similar game really, but it is, like you said, you know, it's in the same kind of idea yeah. uh, where you're building a, a small business. What I find bonkers about this though is that you're trying to build all these different kinds of, very different types of alcohol in the same place. You know, you're not focusing on like, whiskey or vodka or whatever you know and and brewing different types of those you're you're really expanding in into all the different types of spirits available yeah from all around the world yeah because each game you play there will be like free world regions so in the base game there's um the americas the europe's and the asia's right and uh, within those, there'll be certain drinks that belong to those regions, right? But you could brew anything out of those three regions. You know, uh, one day you could be making tequila, another day you'll be making moonshine, uh, third day you'll be making, uh, I don't know, brandy, something like that, right? Whiskey, uh, anywhere, anything, doesn't, doesn't really matter. Whatever you want to have a go at, try and making, you can make that, right? Uh, probably not very successfully. Um, the trick to this game and and the weird cadence of this game is is the idea that what you need to make alcohol is basically all you need to make alcohol is um, some water, some yeast, and some sugar. Right, so the three key ingredients. Out of that, you can make anything from moonshine to you know sochu, sochu. Right, um, and what that transpires into is this is this really weird game there is a market in this game that offers like the basic cards right so the basic cards being uh the aforementioned yeast and water and then there's three types of sugar there is uh grain sugar plant sugar and fruit sugar and there's also a couple of aging devices meaning a clay pot and a wooden barrel right Uh, because some drinks that you're trying to make will require those right and and then you uh so when you have finished buying things so you can buy two cards always from this basic market and you already start with with some uh, but because you need at least three cards to make a drink you are gonna be in a need for the things that you made previously to propel you along because just buying from this basic market 
is not going to be enough. Now, there is a different market. There is a market of advanced things. For example, uh, there will be upgrades to your distillery. So, for example, uh, you could buy a person that, you know, gives you a grain sugar at the start of every round, you know, for free, just have one, right? Or there's advanced ingredients that will, uh, you know, carry with it a points reward that if you use them in addition or instead of the basic, you know, grain sugar, let's say, uh, or monetary rewards, there's fancy bottles that you could package your drink in and sell and then you'll get more points if they're from the right region or whatever um there, there there are a lot of these things that you can buy but they are so tremendously expensive <laughs> and the reward that you get from them is always just like well you will get some victory points you'll get a monetary reward but the reward is literally less than what you paid for it right uh, the only advantage is that you will get a point or maybe two points or three points and in a game where you know it's just the victory points right that's that's the end end goal of it right that matters and and the trouble again with this with all of this is that the stuff you use it just goes away you get a metal barrel to make your drink in and it doesn't Classy. look yeah, it doesn't look very appetizing. And you get like a standard bottle that you can sell it in. So you always have a bottle to sell your drink in. But everything else just costs a lot of money and you can't reuse it. You can just reuse that bottle and that barrel. That's it, right? Um, now, when you assemble your drink, uh, so you can only make one drink around as well. So you're only going to ever make seven drinks in total in this game. Um, when you assemble your drink, like I said, you need one water, one yeast and at least one sugar of any kind, whatever, right? And what sugar you actually want to put into it depends on what type of drink you're trying to make. For every sugar that you put in, you'll also put in an alcohol card, and then you will take all of these cards that you put into your wash back, and you will assemble them into a deck, and then you will shuffle them, and you will take the top card and the bottom card of that deck away. They go back into your storeroom, so that is something you can reuse next round. And if, you know, it's a sugar, great, you don't need to buy another sugar. If it's a water, you don't need to buy more water, you know. So it's it's something that returns. But they can't be part of your drink. And this is the really key and crucial bit. So you will always be able to make at least moonshine and vodka, right? Because apparently, you know, they don't have a lot of requirements. But if you spend money, again, which you don't have any of, to have access to a recipe to make sochu, for example, and it requires you to have two grain sugars in your drink, and all you could afford was to buy two grain sugars that were really hard to get at the beginning of the round, and then you shuffled your deck, you know, you padded it out with some alcohol cards, and then you took the top card off, bottom card off, and one of them was those grain sugars that you put in. That's it. You can't make sochu. You can just make moonshine or vodka. And the problem with that is that the point reward for sochu and vodka is very different, right? You just got penalized very, very hard for what is effectively almost not in your control. Now, having said that, there are a lot of levers in this game. Um, you could get an upgrade that only removes the top card, not the bottom card. You could you could mitigate your luck in different ways. You could stack your deck with more sugars if you could afford them, right? Um, you could um, 
you could go an entirely different way where you're not even selling a drink this round, meaning you just spent a lot of money to make it. You're not getting any money back, but and you just bought a barrel, which is also money you didn't have, and you put that all in your warehouse, and uh, you're you're just not selling it. But every round it sits in the warehouse, it gets a flavor card, which is a random reward of money, uh, and then for each flavor card, uh, depending on how many you have, you get progressively more victory points. So theoretically, there's this moment where, like, if I make a drink on round two, and I put it in my warehouse, and I only sell it on round seven, I will reap a lot of point rewards, right, for that one drink. Uh, But it's hard to recuperate because you've just started your economy, you barely have any money, and in round two, you spent all of your money into this expensive drink that you're trying to make, and you're not getting it back until the end of the game. So it's, it's a game that feels very punitive and and very precise and it really really never lets up up until right the very end where you can just sort of splurge in the last round and buy this thing or that thing or that thing and make whatever you want but there is this big element of randomness where like the thing that you're trying to make could just go and disappear i think some of the things that you saw as frustrations or that you found frustrating in this game um and the reason i enjoyed it a bit more than you was because i saw them more as ways i could tighten my own game and improve and things that i could get better at by playing this game more like make it like for example when you put stuff into the washback um how much do you put into the washback you want to make this drink Mm. and you like you said it is frustrating because you want to be able to make this drink and if you don't end up with the right ingredients, you simply can't and you have to make something worse, like mm. or moonshine, potentially. Um, and there is a balance of how much do I actually put into this washback? How much fruit that I've just, or, or grain or um, plant sugars mm. that I've just bought and spent a lot of money on, do I put in? Am I just going to waste it? Right. And I found that really difficult It, it in the same way that I find auction mechanisms difficult. And I said this to you uh, that where I never quite know how much something is worth. If I'm the first person to have to start the auction, I am awful. I either been way too low or way too high. And I did the same thing in this game. Either I ended up putting in way too much fruit sugars or or plant sugars or grain sugars Mm -hmm. to ensure that I got the thing that I wanted to make, right? But by that point, so I ended up with like five sugars in it, right? And it only required three or something, right? And so I ended up with not having much money because all of that goes away. There's, There's also the balance between when and how long do you develop something for. Uh, So when you put stuff into the warehouse to age, how long do you keep it there for? Do you keep it there just for one round? Because some of the drinks require you to age them. You can't just sell them immediately. So just, just keep it there for one round and get immediate return almost. Or do you leave it there to get much higher points uh, and much more value from it. Can you afford to do that? I don't know. And those things I found less frustrating and more like, 
I just need to play this game more and I will get more familiar with how this plays. Mm. I I appreciate all of that. I think uh, what you prompted me on just now was, I don't think I explained my frustrations with the game very well. So um, I know a lot of people will get hung up on the randomness and that kind of randomness really smarts because this is a very precise game. Uh, it really makes you push a lot of hoops and and then sometimes you can just push those hoops and work very hard and go what ah uh, okay <sighs> right so but that's fine you know what i i kind of i can appreciate a game like that and and it doesn't bother me that much but i think where this goes over that and 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 becomes just not fun for me is that the fact that it's not just very punitive it's not just very precise it's not just very like tight and like doesn't ever want to you know give you that sense of like things are building and exploding right it's very contained i think for me it's like like the stuff that you buy because it's so impermanent right i want it to be a little bit more interesting than well you buy the thing and you will get less money than you spent on it but you know you will get that upside of like one more point over this right and and even with upgrades that theoretically improve your um distillery and give you like unique abilities that others don't have like there's an upgrade that says oh like you know spend five money and every round you will get a discount of one money on 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 everything you buy but only for one thing around so so if i buy this on round one i can spend five money to eventually save seven money but I could use that five money to just like buy fruits and sugars and make more alcohol, right? Like, why would I do that? Oh, because at the end of the game, it will give me a point or two points or whatever it is, right? And I might have not gotten these values precisely correct because I don't remember the game offhand. But it's it's that sort of sense of like, well, you get a little bit and enjoy it, <laughs> right? Feeding, and I'm like... You? Yeah, and I'm like, no, make this more interesting. And so, well, I, I'm sort of leading myself to a point here. But in the email, um, a conversation I had with a designer where, uh, you know, we were just liaising the review copy and stuff like that. Uh, he mentioned that they will have an expansion going on Kickstarter that will reintegrate original design elements of this game where every ingredient card or whatever had an additional effect that it added to to the whole thing and i was like yes this is what this game needs and i understand why they removed it because people just found it too overwhelming i can imagine that right but also i think what that would give me is is a little bit more variety and judge that the game needs because that's why we asked for an expansion to see like hey does this change things up and it added another region and add a whole bunch of new drinks that you can make. But the problem with the game is that the drinks are like fundamentally very abstract and very similar. The difference between them is this needs two plant sugar. This needs one grain sugar. And here's how much it costs to get the recipe. And here's the points you will get for making it. That's it. That's like there isn't this like grand big moment of like, yes, I made this drink. And now, because I made this drink, it will let me make these... Uh, no, it's just like, phew, I just about managed to make this drink, and I should be grateful for that. 
But I think I enjoyed that slim simplicity a bit more than you. Mm. I think I enjoyed the simplicity of just this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. Go do it now. Right. Yeah. I, I will say, though, that the game ends very quickly. Seven rounds seems like quite a lot. And uh-huh. it's not. No. Uh, because suddenly you're round three and you're discarding one of your uh, end of game goal cards uh, and you're going, oh, we're, we're halfway through the game. Oh, dear. Uh, I've done nothing. Yeah. Uh, what do I do now? Uh, what I will say, though, is that the end of game um, victory point cards, mm. you get three at the beginning, which you keep until the end of round three, and then you discard one. So you already have an idea by the end of round three of what you are going to achieve or what you might achieve. It's so a when rare do- moment of generosity in this game. It? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was a nice touch. And I liked how the rule book had in it uh, a few snippets of like real life information, like what what is a washback, for example? Why is this in the game? Yeah. Uh, and it was very clearly laid out as mm. to this is real information don't don't read this as part of the rules don't yeah. get yourself confused so i appreciate that i like i think what one of the funny things about the game is that like you know when when you think about like an industry and being like well if i make these things i will buy them for cheaper i will make them into a thing and i will sell them for money and the environment this game models is that like yes you will spend money on ingredients and you will make much less money than you spend on on making the thing and the only thing that propels you for this industry is scavenging the dregs of the previous thing that you made and somehow repurposing it into another alcohol that you just discovered and think maybe i'll try my hand at this but you're gonna put it in a fancy bottle and so it's gonna sell for more do you want to talk about the board yeah i do want to talk about the board so this is this is a production criticism that i is We've mentioned again in in the previous bonus episode where we talked about Skytear Horde, the newest development of Kickstarter uh, fueled publishing is that um, they will not give you a board, but they will make a playmat um, that is available as an add-on that you can buy to have instead of the board. So there is there is a so in in fairness, there isn't just one board in this game. You have player boards. And you have this like basic market board and you have the point scoring board. But there's also the the markets where you buy the fancy ingredients and bottles and upgrades, right? And there are there are three decks with four cards laid out each and a discard pile. The discard pile has a board, but all the all the decks and all the cards laid out, the 12 cards, they don't have a board. But you can buy an add-on playmat to have you. Why do board games have a board that is an optional purchase? And what about people who are buying it at retail? They just don't get to have a board at all. Why do why do I have to pay money to get a plastic board because it's made out of neoprene uh, and therefore much less environmentally friendly than cardboard why is that a thing why can't people just have a board why is this a development can i just say i didn't actually like the play map very much because it's very colorful and more than once we almost forgot to put out a card uh, yeah. when we'd taken one because it looked like there was already a card there because there was colors there <laughs> Yeah, it felt like the contrast was overcompensated because anything you print on neoprene is super dull, right? Um, So here it was like, no, we will add all of the contrast. And it goes artistically in, in, in a stark opposition to the rest of the game, which has very muted, very brown colors. And and 
it's it, it doesn't fit aesthetically. It it's not pleasant to not just have a board and it's definitely not pleasant to pay extra money to have like this board for your no just no please don't do this overall it was a good experience though for me i know you didn't gel with it as much but i think if you like games like viticulture um and you want something a bit to the side of that where you're distilling spirits instead of wine. Uh, but it, it's a similar feel, I think. Um, it's meatier than viticulture, it's definitely. It's definitely meaty, yeah. yeah. And and there's not kind of moving around, moving your, your grande workers and your workers around. Um, but if you enjoy that kind of thing, then I think this is something you might enjoy as well. Uh, I will just note that we've we've only played it with two players. There is also that sort of element where it's a game that mostly plays to itself. You know, each player just does their own thing. There's very little interaction. Um, but um, there is an adjustment for two players which uh, clears the unwanted cards from the market board more efficiently than with three or four or five players, which this game goes up to. But also not as efficiently as if you were just playing with five players, right? Because there's just not enough being purchased and it feels like a lot of things on that board just stagnate and this is true and become unsightly. and i think part of that is because again some of them are less that you want them and more that you need them if you're like i'm des it's round six i'm desperate to make this expensive alcoholic drink because you know i've 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 invested a lot of money into the tequila recipe right this is the last because you know you need to age it so this is the last round when i can make tequila right i really need to make it i need to make sure that i don't accidentally randomly take out the sugars out of the you know out of my drink so that I can no longer make it and end up with moonshine, which doesn't give me any points and ruins my entire game. So, you know, you you, you buy the sugars, you know, just en masse, just to make sure that you can make this drink, right? So, but before that, they're, like, you don't have the money to invest so much. I kind of wish there was something that said... Um, for some kind of action or as something on a card or a, a starting uh, action that said you can remove one card from one of the display cards and replace it with something else. I think those decks are very big and there's a lot of different powers and a lot of different abilities that don't, they don't all feel even and some of them don't amount to much. I think I wish this game was a bit more condensed and and had less card sprawl and more cards with effects that feel more impactful and interesting i think that would push this over uh for me from i like some of what it's doing i also don't gel with other parts uh to like i'm really enjoying this game because it's giving me like not just that sense of like hey i'm i'm you know, in an aspirational business, uh, I'm a mom and pop kind of thing, you know, to like this, this is fun on a play level and on a thematic level. And that's all the cardboard for now. Thank you so much for listening. On the next episode, we'll be talking about Undaunted Battle of Britain, Sky Mines and Marquee. So if you have any words of wisdom or any questions about those, please do let us know. Elaine at nopunincluded.com. In the meantime, Efka, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it and what can they find on our bonus episode this week? Well, they can find the bonus episode by becoming a patron of No Pun Included 
uh, which is at patreon.com slash no point included. Any of the pledge levels you choose on that page uh, will support us and make this podcast and our YouTube channel where we do video reviews of board games possible. Uh, But also, we'll give you access to bonus episodes of this podcast. On this week, we will be more gamesing by reviewing two more games. We're going to talk about Turing Machine and also our first impressions of El Grande, which is a game from 1995 and still very good. Uh, So if you want to hear about that, you can become a supporter of No One Included and get a bonus episode every time we do a main episode. They come out together. Uh, What's on our YouTube channel? We have a review of Aeon Trespass Odyssey, uh, a very, 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 very big game with a very, 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 very big video coming out. It's going to come out before the reprint campaign Kickstarter for that game ends. And it's going to be very long and it's going to have a very comprehensive look from the perspective of someone who's not necessarily enamored with everything it's doing, but also likes some of the things that it's doing and going to really analyze the things that I think work don't work should you buy it should you not buy it if you're on the fence about and trespass odyssey uh you've heard a previous episode where we talked about it uh that's going to be the video that's going to tell you everything you need to know so watch out for that finally what is the game of the episode i'm gonna say world breakers it really surprised me i i think i didn't expect it to be as good as it was it was very 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 good very enjoyable so world breakers for me but have to admit, very closely tied to Rezzarkana. Well, there you go, folks. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine. <laughs>